Welcome to Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're two best friends entering the world of true crime. We'll be sharing the stories of some of the worst and most horrific murder cases in history with the help of professional criminologists. And we're taking you along for the ride. In this episode, we're looking into the complicated case of Eileen Warnos. going to do things a bit differently today. I'm going to talk to you about Eileen Warnos. How excited are you, Helen? I'm taking you on a ride for once. I know. So I'm going to sit back and listen to a story being told to me. It's a great one as well. Um, well, I say great. Are any of them great? Not really. But um, so Eileen Warnos, the basis of the film Monster which won Charlize Theron her Oscar in 2004. Oh. Yeah. Don't know if you've ever seen it. No. It's quite harrowing. Um, What's it about? Oh, wait. We're about to find out. We're about to find out. It's about about Eileen Warnos. Okay. (laughs) She's a murderer. Okay. (laughs) I am so ready. I've got in my comfy position in my chair. Hang on. (sighs) Right. Just before we get stuck in, the excitement of the fact that you're reading the story has basically overtaken the fact that I haven't asked how you are. Well, I thought, and you haven't asked. Should I be asking? I should ask first. Okay, I'm. That's, I'm taking the lead here. Okay, go on then. I apologise. I've let you all down already. How are you, Helen? I'm great. I've had two <laughs> cheese bread, cheesed breaded bits of food today. Wonderful. I had a ham and cheese croissant. And then a five cheese toasty. Mm, a double cheesed it. A double cheese. You know what? Like life is definitely too short to not double cheese. Mm-hmm. And anybody that feels differently, uh, just please try it. You know, and, you know, just every now and again, it doesn't have to be every day. That's too much. Your bowels probably won't like it. But. I, de- I rarely double cheese. So today is an exception. It's a sunny day. And um, oh, it was a glorious moment. I'm proud of you. I feel good. I feel good about it. Like I feel like this is a good omen. Yeah. Yeah. You might. We might see the double cheese. To be fair, though, it gets a bit rough. Oh fuck. Okay. I'm so excited. How are you? How are you? Yeah, I'm great. I'm buzzing. Um, no, it. no. You were sick in your on yourself earlier. Well, yeah. There was that, but it happens, <laughs> so it's fine. I really thought I was past this phase of um, the sick, uh, but no. This morning, it just happened. My fruit and fibre. Gross. It was Grace. On the subject of vomit, can I tell you something that happened to me at the weekend? Always. I'm so proud of myself. I'm actually proud of me and Phil for the team effort. So I went to a wedding in Liverpool and it was a, just picture it, Northerners, Liverpoolians, Scouser wedding. Yeah. Loads of people. I mean, I've met the bride Bex and yep. the groom Luke a couple of times. You have. And they're great. They're great. They know how to party. They know how to party. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And, um... It was a brilliant wedding, um, beautiful day. Everybody was up for partying from the get-go. So everyone was on top form, vibes were great. I felt great. I must admit, like, you know, I had you my- looked f- wonderful. Well, you thank you. Great. Yeah. But we had our fair share of booze that was being passed around and, you know, lovely food. And at the end of the night, you know, it would be a lie to say that I wasn't drunk. I was definitely drunk. We all were. 
Um, but I felt all right. Like I was like, okay, just get on the coach, take us back to the hotel, all good. Sat there. I had my bunch of flowers, bridesmaid flowers in my hand. I closed my eyes thinking I'll just have a quick nap. And then I go, Phil, I'm going to be sick. And because my flowers were in a vase, he just pulls pulls the flowers out the vase. He goes, be sick of the vase. And so imagine it, it's quite a small vase, like just for a little bunch of flowers with a small opening in the top. And I just managed to sit myself up and then press my lips around the top of this vase just to go. (laughs) And I had to carry it from the bus through the hotel into the and emptied it in my toilet. Oh, what? oh you didn't just I'd have just chucked it out. No, drain God, no. Oh yeah. No. Oh, You're a bad I'm, person. I am. That's why I'm the disgusting one. Yes. I'm so sorry. Anyway. Anyway. Vomit we, aside. Yeah. Let's crack on. Tell let's, me a story, Danny. Let's set the scene. Uh, I say that. <laughs> Not today, bitch. <laughs> it's November 30th, 1989 in Central Florida. A 51-year-old man has just picked up a sex worker from the side of the road. He had no idea it was his last decision he was ever going to make. He had just picked up a serial killer. She was just utterly remorseless. This was somebody who enjoyed watching men die. In her mass murdering spree, Eileen Warnos targeted middle-aged, wealthy men with fancy, expensive cars. Very few women have ever killed in such a violent and vile manner in history. Eventually, she was recorded confessing to her girlfriend. Why the hell did you do this? Why did you do this? So let's go back to the start. Eileen Warnos was born on February 29th in Rochester, Michigan. Her mum was just 16 years old when she had her and struggled to look after a baby at such a young age. Author and journalist Geoffrey Wonsall and criminologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley know exactly where Eileen's troubled life began. By March 1960, when Eileen's just four, she's formally adopted by her mother's parents, her grandparents. She had a really brutal upbringing with them, so she was regularly beaten by her grandfather. There were allegations of incest within the family. Eileen's grandfather had a really cruel and specific way that he would punish her if she ever acted out. So he had a home-built sauna in his house, and if Eileen did something that he didn't like, then as punishment, he'd lock her in there, crank up the heat, and then just let her stay there. Just leave her there. How bad is that? Oh my God, that is fucking brutal. Genuinely, I cannot think of anything worse. He's basically mildly cooking, he's slow cooking. I her. just, oh, I'm, I find saunas really stressful at like the best of times. Mm-hmm. Um, that it's fun until you get to that point where you're like, oh my God, I'm sweaty and mm-hmm. can I even leave here? Have my legs just turned to roast chicken? Also, I find them hard to breathe in sometimes. Yeah. And you know, like they say, oh, you should sit in the sauna for like 15 minutes and then do a cold dunk. I can only manage about five and it's just too much. And S- saunas just, are the dry ones, aren't yeah, they? They're yeah. Dry. A steam room is a steam oh, yeah. room. <laughs> <laughs> no, oh. That is fucking horrible. Isn't what it? an awful way to punish a child. A child, exactly. Like, and crank up the heat. 
Yeah. My God. My uncle had a sauna in one of his spare rooms really? when we had when I was a kid. And me and my cousin used to play in there. We used to use it like a Wendy house, basically. Right. And now I think about it. We're so lucky that we didn't just accidentally lock ourselves in there and turn it on. Like in like a final destination yeah. sort of oh my scenario. God. Yeah. And like if you think about it too much, saunas genuinely are just so scary. Yeah. Also, at what point did like they think she's been in there long enough? Yeah, I know. Because she could have just died. I know. And, well, this is the thing. I, would he have cared? I'm not sure. Oh, Yeah. So messed up. It's so messed up. And Eileen's abusive childhood sent her on a downward spiral and sparked a hatred of men that would last a lifetime. This was somebody who was constantly in fear. Wernos's grandfather allegedly repeatedly said to her that she was worthless, that she should never have been born, that she was a mistake. So she's learning that she can't trust anyone, that she can't depend upon anybody. And this is very, very dangerous. I know I shouldn't say this, but I'm already empathising with her. It's really hard not to at the start. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I sort of watched Monster as my first... Okay. introduction to Eileen mm-hmm. and that very much focuses on sort of her Eileen's relationship as a love story right and it it's so good like Jenny I won't go into it too much because the film is so well made it's just really good um but at the start it's very hard not to feel sorry for her okay because that's what I'm feeling right now yeah and I do think we've discussed this before in some of the previous episodes it's quite easy i think naturally as women we're inclined to feel more sympathetic towards another woman yeah definitely yeah um but it's she's really interesting so um but don't feel too sorry for her okay i mean you can feel sorry for her now eileen struggled in early life and sadly she learned to use any means necessary to survive so at around 11 years old she started trading sexual favors for cigarettes and by the age of 14 she was pregnant with her first child Now, on the orders of her grandfather, that baby is adopted. It's taken away from her. And this is just reinforcing those ideas that that she already has, that those who are supposed to love me hurt me, that I am worthless, that I'm not deserving of love. It's sad to hear, Mm. isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. So not long after she was forced to give up her child, Eileen was then hit with another tragedy. Her grandmother dies of liver failure, having been quite a heavy drinker for many years. Her grandfather actually blames her for her grandmother's death. Her grandfather was furious and threw Warnos out of the house. What the fuck is his problem? I'm going to put this out there. Eileen's granddad. Yeah. Absolute dick. Yeah. Yeah. So at just 15, Eileen was homeless. And all alone, her only option was to live in the woods at the end of their street. Oh my God. She's only 15. She's still a child. Why is he not caring for this child? Because he's a dick. (sighs) She lives a very feral existence, sleeping in an old car. And she's still a child at this point. And, And this is incredibly damaging. There is absolutely nobody there for her. She is literally just taking each day as it comes. She's making sure that she has enough to eat. Um, she is is basically using her body as she's used it before. She's learning that life is full of rejection, it's full of pain, it's full of fear, and that she really needs to hurt others before they get the chance to hurt her. I think by using her body as well, like, you know, fair play, if that's all you have to be able to get by, use it. Mm. Um, but it really, she has no worth. Yeah. And that's really sad. 
and very damaging from such a a young age her I don't want to say innocence, but it is almost yeah. has just been taken from her. She's never had it. She lost it in the sauna. Yeah. Yeah. The only person she did have on her side was her brother, Keith. He was just 11 months older than Eileen, but their relationship sadly didn't seem that straightforward. There were allegations of incest. Um, school friends of Keith said that they'd witnessed these things going on. So she felt a connection, but it was a very pathological and a very toxic one. So even like, yeah, the one connection that she does have, the one sort of loving connection that she does have, isn't in the right way. No. Yeah. So understandably, Eileen couldn't survive living outdoors during Michigan's freezing winter months. They get lows of minus 16 degrees Celsius. Shit. That's really cold. It's very cold. So she left hitchhiking over a thousand miles west to Colorado because it's the 70s. And we've talked about this before. Everybody just hitchhiked everywhere. Two years later, she was arrested for her first offence, driving under the influence and disorderly conduct, which included the dangerous discharge of a 22 calibre weapon. Whoa. Eventually, in 1976, at age 20, she hitchhiked 2,000 miles south to sunny Florida. What a place to go! I don't blame her. It is no accident that very shortly after she gets to Florida... She falls in love with, or at least decides to marry, a 69-year-old man called Louis Gratz Fell. He was president of the Yacht Club, but it was a doomed marriage. She's been incredibly violent towards him. Eileen was actually beating him up. She was hitting him with his own walking cane. There's a significant age gap there. Yeah, defo. 49 years. Mm-hmm. Like, is she seeing this man as her grandfather? Is she just so used to the people who are supposed to love her hurting her that she's getting in there first? She's sort of developing this quite um, almost typically masculine response to uh, unhealthy romantic situations. It's like she's not ever had a positive experience with people that are supposed to be close and love her never had that nurture and it almost feels like at this tipping point in her life she's regaining back some control that she never had and perhaps that she's targeting her husband with this aggression because she feels like yeah she's got power over him and it feels good I think that's exactly it it's empowering and it's dangerous So Lewis filed a restraining order against Eileen and then filed for an annulment just weeks after they were married, which I think is great because quite often, especially in like the 70s, a lot of men probably wouldn't own up to being abused by a woman. Nope. So it's good for you, Lewis. Also, they didn't have sex by the sounds of it because you can't annul a marriage, apparently, if you've had sex, if you've consummated it. That's so interesting. I'm pretty sure that's how how it goes. Yeah, because when I was going through my ordeal... Why don't you just annul it? Well, I can't. Yeah, because I know that annulment <laughs> within a certain time period as well. Yeah. I also am no longer the record holder in my family, so putting that out there. Well done. While the proceedings were going through, Eileen received some devastating family news. 
1976, her brother Keith dies of throat cancer and she's absolutely beside herself. And even though their relationship was an incredibly abnormal and dysfunctional one, she felt that she had an ally in him. But now she was completely on her own. So her last ally is gone. It's not great. Keith hadn't left her to fend for herself. He did leave her $10,000 in his will, which in modern money, I'd looked this up, uh, that's the equivalent of just over £52,000. Cool, he did set her up with a nice deposit then on a, on a place. Yeah, exactly. It's an amount that could like really help change your life. Yeah, or get you set up. Yeah, particularly... You get a deposit, a car, yeah, yeah get started. Like, you could at least pay rent on a place while you help yourself get back on your feet. Exactly. Eileen didn't do that. She used almost all of it in weeks. She spent it on guns, cars and motel rooms. <laughs> and then, yeah, you know... <laughs> So the money goes and she decides that she wants to keep with this fancy lifestyle, this fast, fancy lifestyle, guns, drugs, just guns and cars and motels. <laughs> um, so she turns to armed robbery to finance it. This is so interesting. Such an interesting choice of how to spend that money. You go down one road, set yourself up for life, have a positive future or spunk it all on guns and cars and motel rooms. Yes. Cigarettes and beer, man. It's, like, it's basically, it feels like it's a real GTA. Right there. She's spiralling <laughs> in a really massive way. She's yeah. like, defo, grand theft auto, cheat me in a helicopter. I need a rocket launcher. Got all my guns, got all my cars, motel rooms. Yeah, bitch. <laughs> It just, it just seems so so mental for a woman in the 70s to it's, just be like... It's pretty extreme. But she need a grill or something. Yeah. <laughs> so she's doing the armed robbery and then in 1981, she was arrested for stealing $35 and two packs of cigarettes from a convenience store. It's always a really shit thing they steal, which Isn't they it? get done for. Really minor well, things. Like a can of fucking salmon. I'm never going to be over the can of salmon. <laughs> Do not even get me started. <laughs> Eileen spent over a year in jail for that, but that didn't stop her. Over the next decade, her criminal activity escalated and she wanted that lifestyle back. Living on the edge. She really did demonstrate versatility. She was being arrested for driving under the influence, for assault and battery, for, for robbery. One man claimed when she was a uh, prostitute again that she whipped a gun out and put it to his head and demanded $200. She was, to put it politely, out of control. I love Jeff. To put it politely, she was out of control. But he had a wide neck. <laughs> Saying she's out of control isn't even rude. No, I know. Bless him. In 1986, Eileen met a woman who changed her life. Here's Detective Brian Jarvis. When she met Tyree, what, what Aileen thought, this is my soulmate. This is the person I want to spend the rest of my life with, and I will do anything for this girl. I have mixed feelings about Tyria. Okay. She's apparently, in my research, a really private, sort of reclusive person mm. and didn't want to be approached by any producers or um, anyone like that. So when they made the film Monster, I know I keep talking about it, but it was such a good film. They made her character into somebody else oh. called Shelby. Shelby. Shelby, played by Christina Ricci. Oh, yeah. love her. I know. Yeah, she's an interesting character. Having blown her inheritance, Eileen took it upon herself to raise the money that the two needed to survive. Aileen would go out and prostitute to make money so that she could buy things for Tyria. She would want to take care of her and make sure she was happy and, and never want to leave her. And I think that was what it boiled down to. Just going to side note here. Um, I know a lot of the 
voice clips use sort of more outdated terms like prostitute we're not a big fan of that here we're you know pro-sex work so just sort of bear in mind i know that some people really don't like it it's not something that we have a lot of control over these clips unfortunately but um if we ever slip up with those kind of words then obviously hopefully we won't in the film anakid god oh enough about this film already i just she goes i'm going back to hooking she would call it hooking and i quite liked that i thought it sounded jazzy anyway it started off with simple petty crimes but things were getting darker for eileen and it all came to a head the night she was picked up by 51 year old richard mallory Richard Mallory owned an electrical repair shop and he'd been divorced for for many years and he didn't make any secret of the fact that he did enjoy engaging in the services of sex workers. He picked her up hitchhiking, they were drinking, they were hanging out as it were and one thing led to another, uh, some type of violent encounter where she ended up killing him. She shot him four times with a nine-shot revolver. She took a couple of pieces of property that belonged to him, a camera and a radar detector, and she pawned them. She made some money off of the deal. Okay, so that escalated. It's escalated, yeah. So, um, you know what I said about at the start, you could sort of only really feel sorry for her at the start. Mm -hmm. This is where you get less so much. Yeah, because although you can understand why someone will be troubled and have these feelings, it's still not okay to take them out on other people. Well, so Eileen was like a real pathological liar. Right. Um, from what I've been sort of reading of her. And there are several different accounts from her as to why it got as far as it did this encounter. What they did in the film, they sort of used one of those accounts. Right. And it was fucking horrific to watch, to be honest. Oh God. Yeah. And once again, perhaps in the first instance, like it was a ki- if it was a kill or be killed situation... As she said one time, mm-hmm. she didn't say that every time, right? Yeah, so that's why you can't. It's a very complex case. She's a complex lady, but uh, yeah, she's taken it too far. So when Richard's body was found two weeks after he was killed, police couldn't find any evidence of what made her kill. He was shot multiple times, but the body was so decomposed there was pretty much nothing else the cops could do. So she's got away with it. What exactly drove Eileen to kill for the first time remains a mystery to the police. But for Eileen, taking one life wasn't going to cut it. And just six months later, she struck again. She got a taste for that. Yeah. And that made her feel something special. Mm -hmm. So she needed that. She needed that hit again. On May 19th, 1990, she was picked up on the I-75 highway, which is a busy road in Florida, by a 43-year-old machine operator named David Spears. Eileen directed for them to pull over and David began to undress. With David distracted, Eileen slipped out the passenger side door, walked around to the driver's side and shot David point blank. For no reason. There's no, you can't argue self-defence. Nope. There. That's. Christ. Yeah. See what I mean? What the? You you can't feel sorry for that. Nah, she just, she just thought, "Ah, do it again. We'll do it again. Pull over here, will you? I think she really gets off on this, like this feeling of power. Yeah, but like, at what point did she decide that that was what she was going to wake up and do that day? Was it something that she decided a few days before, a few weeks before? Or was it in that moment that she thought, fuck it, Mm. let's pull over? Once again, it's also interesting because female killers usually tend to be less aggressive in their approach. They use poison or to point blank use a gun. 
is once again a very masculine, typically masculine typically way masculine, yeah. of murdering people. So I just find that interesting. David was last seen in the afternoon by his son, leaving work to meet up with his ex-wife. And so when he didn't show, his family immediately reported him missing. Our patrol division had come upon a vehicle that was abandoned on I-75. It was in the southbound lane on the shoulder. It had a flat tire. And when they ran the VIN number on the vehicle, it came back to David Spears, who had been reported a missing person. We searched the area. We secured the vehicle to process it. And we found that she had taken some stuff out of the vehicle and tossed it off the side of the road into the the weeds. The items included the license plate or the tag from the car. David Spears' body was found less than two weeks later, dumped in nearby Citrus County, just a few miles from the I-75. But Eileen wasn't done. In fact, she was just getting started. On May 31st, 40-year-old Charles Cascadin, a part-time rodeo rider, picked up Eileen. He was travelling back from St. Louis at the time and coming back from visiting his mother. And then he was going back home to his fiancée. Naughty boy. Oh, yeah. Naughty boy. Maybe he was just giving her a lift. No. No, he's getting it on. He wanted... He would never get there. Eileen had developed a deadly routine. She would instruct them to find a remote location and encourage them to remove their clothes. So already putting them in a more vulnerable Mm -hmm. position. As Charles undressed, Eileen got straight out of the passenger seat, walked around to the driver's side and shot Charles nine times. Fuck. Yeah. Well, you know, if you tell someone to take off your clothes, you immediately get excited because you think, way. The number of shots is increasing as well. Yeah. She's increasing. She's getting... There's Some enjoyment out of this. At close range, nine shots is way more than yeah, that. Oh, that's too yeah. much. Once she was sure he was dead, she started packing up his belongings to take with her. Detective Brian Jarvis thinks that this is a turning point for Eileen. Yeah, because she's not taken anything before, has she? She's taken a couple of things, but not their whole belongings. Okay. She didn't do that with Richard Mallory. She just took items she could use. Now she's starting to gather those those souvenirs and those trophies and, and uh, it's becoming a passion of hers to do this stuff. She dumped Charles's body a few miles from the highway in Pasco County. Just a week after her last killing, Eileen went back out on the hunt and on June 7th, she chose to return to her favourite highway, the I-75, in central Florida. After three murders, I guess you could say she was in a stride? Uh, yeah. Mm. See if she's she's got a kick out of this. She's, she's decided that this is her new favorite thing to she's do. She's got a taste for it, and it's there. She's escalating. They're yeah. coming closer together. So that night, Christian missionary Peter Sims, age sixty-five, oh. left his home in Jupiter, Florida, and was driving north on the I seventy-five. Peter Sims was on a road trip, and he never made it to his destination. His intent was to drive up to New Jersey, and from there he had planned on going over to Arkansas. He had a number of Bibles in the car with him. He was going to pass them out along the way. He could not have thought of as a more upright character. He also took part in an outreach Christian ministry. But I think that that infuriated Warnos because she thought, you hypocrite, I am going to kill you. And she duly did. So the thought was that Peter picked her up to help her? Like off right. her the Christian aid. Okay. The next month, Peter's car was found in Ocala National Forest, 50 miles west of Daytona Beach. This would turn out to be the one piece of evidence that would lead to Eileen's downfall. Author and journalist Jeffrey Wansell and Detective Brian Jarvis talk about what happened to Sims's car. 
Now, this is interesting because his body has never been discovered. The only way we know that he's dead is that his car was taken by Moore and Wuornos and driven around. Aileen and Tyria had decided that they wanted to go see the fireworks in Daytona Beach. As they were driving, they noticed a sign that indicated there was an Indian reservation up in the Ocala Forest. They turned around and Tyria was going just a little bit too fast. She went off the road, the car turned on its passenger side and slid. The engine had stalled out, the carburetor had flooded, they couldn't get it started. The witness reported the suspicious encounter to the Marion County Police Department, who went to investigate. Now, the one thing that was important to note here was that was the first time somebody actually saw these girls. We had received a telephone call through our 911 center that a vehicle had crashed in the community of Orange Springs, Florida. And walking away from that vehicle were two women. The license plate had been removed. The driver's side seat was in the forwardmost position, and we would find that certain things were missing from his vehicle. In this case, it was his receipt book and, and cash. So at this point, we have another missing person. We have no idea what happened to him. It wasn't long until police connected the car to Peter, but they never found his body. They did, however, find a bunch of pawn shop tickets in the car, and when they tracked down the store, they made a major breakthrough in the case. The tickets were four. There was two tickets. One was for a box of tools, Mm -hmm. which was one of the things stolen from David Spears. And the other ticket was for a 35mm camera and a radar detector, which we heard earlier was stolen from Richard Mallory. So she's selling people stuff. And she's now they now have evidence to connect. Right, and she left him in the car. Yeah, so they now have evidence to connect those three together. Oh my God, it's like a puzzle. I know. Like an actual puzzle. I had to look up what a radar detector was, and it is a machine that Mm. people have on their dashboard that tells you if you're being radared, basically. If if you're under a radar, like a police speed camera, you know, the handheld ones. By aliens. Which makes me think, you know, there's... Is that allowed? But yeah, interesting. But is we, it? No, it's not interesting. I'm sorry. No, everybody. but we no. have speed camera thingies on our sat navs and stuff now. Oh, is that how that works? Probably. Ugh. They submitted the car to forensic examination and made a huge discovery on the driver's side door handle. Wuornos leaves a palm print in Seams' car, which will eventually become extremely significant. Wuornos would pawn many of the items that she stole from her victims in order to to get some fast money. And her fingerprints would still be on these items. Now, because Eileen had such a significant criminal record, her fingerprints were on file and it was only going to be a matter of time before they were matched up and she was connected to these murders. She's a bit sloppy, isn't she? Well, only in this instance because they crashed the car. Yeah, but like, even so... Just, like, killing people, flogging their stuff in the pawn shop. Like, she just don't... She's just not even... So she's just doing it. Up until then, because the first two... I think this is my theory. Right. Because the first two weren't found for a while. Mm. Um, so there was, you know, at least two weeks decomposition in both the first two cases. So they had no 
evidence. They could only gain, what do they call it? Trace evidence. So I think that has got to give you some sort of a little ego boost like I'm doing this and they have no fucking idea it's me yeah and um so she was careful and apparently after the first one it she did sort of spiral into this level of paranoia for a little bit until she realized that they weren't coming for her mm-hmm. yeah so she's riding high on this like they're not coming for me ha ha I'm I really kill people. good at this it's great yeah and then obviously they you know she doesn't account for crashing the car she doesn't account for people seeing them and it's all started to unravel a bit but shockingly, before the police could put the puzzle pieces together, Eileen struck again. On July 30th, Eileen found her fifth victim, a 50-year-old salesman named Troy Burris. Troy Burris, he had gone out to do a delivery run. And when he got to Daytona, he headed north up into Ormond Beach, made a few stops up there, turned around. When he was returning to the plant, he disappeared. On the way back to Daytona, he picked up Eileen, Like previous victims, Troy pulled up at a secluded spot and then minutes later, he was dead. A month later, she took her sixth life. (sighs) Yeah. On September 12th, 56-year-old retired police chief Charles Dick Humphreys was exiting the I-75 again. She loves that road. Her favourite road. When he picked up Eileen. They drove to a deserted location a few miles off the highway in southwestern Marion County and pulled over. David Taylor was the homicide detective called to the scene. The evidence is consistent with Mr. Humphreys getting out of the vehicle from the driver's side. We're looking at Alien Warnos getting out from the passenger side. And it was at that point that shots rang out. So Mr. Humphreys is shot several times. He staggers over to this location, and that's where Mr. Humphreys collapses. But what was so important to us was the fact that he was shot one time at a close non-contact range, meaning that the gun was held only just a few inches away from his chest when that round was fired. (gasps) Personal, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Eileen shot Charles Humphreys a total of seven times. More, which is more than enough times to kill him. That's just too many times. She's already shot him at close range. Yeah. Yeah. By the autumn of that year, police still hadn't figured out that Eileen was behind the murders. By the time Mr. Humphreys was killed, we had thought about there being a connection. So we had contacted every agency in Central Florida, whether it was on a local, state, or federal level, because we didn't know anything. We were, we were almost in the dark on this, and it was very frustrating. So officers revisited the evidence from the previous six murder cases and searched for clues. And it wasn't more than just a couple weeks later when Sergeant Brian Jarvis was actually going through other cases in Florida that had very similar MOs, such as an older white male shot multiple times, vehicle missing, and shot with a small caliber weapon. And it was Brian uh, that began to connect a couple dots. By winter of 1990, months after Eileen started her killing spree, a task force was formed made up of detectives from several of Florida's counties. But while police continued their investigation, Eileen was free to kill again. She killed 62-year-old Reserve Deputy Sheriff Walter Gino Antonio. He was found shot four times in the back of his head and his car handcuffs and flashlight had been stolen back of the head my god it's bad she is 
She's on it. She like, is really. She, she has got a lust for blood. She has got a real thrill, a kick out of this, and it just feels like it's getting worse and worse. And this whole time, she's she can't just be doing it to fund this lifestyle. No, like she can't just be doing it to fund this lifestyle for her and Tyria. She wants to look after her girlfriend. Her girlfriend, you know, want should want for nothing. Also, she doesn't need to kill to fund her life. Exactly. Um, she's not getting anything other than selling their property, but it's not like she's getting a reward for. We already you know. know that she's been inventive enough to make money exactly. in other ways. So this is something. This is personal. Yeah. This is she's getting something out of this just for herself. So Walter was found partially nude on a remote road, and his car was eventually found in another county. It was devastating mm. for the police department. Mm. The task force refocused on the case of missing man Peter Sims. They hadn't been able to find his body, but there were two eyewitnesses that had seen Eileen and her girlfriend at the scene of the crime. They were hoping to find clues that would lead them to the killer. After interviewing the witnesses, police were finally able to draw a composite sketch of the two women, and that changed everything. I think the eureka moment came the first time we went public. Within the first hour of releasing these composites, we had a call that came in. It was item number five, our fifth lead, that named Tyria and Aileen. And in very short sequence, we had three other leads come in that also named the same girls. So now we knew there was something to that. Those leads eventually took us to some biker bars. Now we have undercover investigators that are now going from bar to bar looking for people that look familiar with the people in, in the composite sketches. Um, it's probably worth noting that they both, like Eileen and Tyria, both had quite distinctive faces. Okay. Like they don't just look sort of generic. Eileen's hard life was written on her face, to put it politely. One of the undercover officers sent to find Eileen was Mike Joyner, a lieutenant at the Special Investigations Unit. He was sent to Daytona to check out some of the biker bars to see if Eileen was hanging out with that kind of crew. Within days, he found her. This is Mike. He has a really strong accent. So if you don't hear what he's saying, just let me know and I can explain or read it out for you. But fun fact, the bar that he's talking about is the actual bar that they used in the film Monster. They filmed it on location there. And they say, I think they have a sign out say, outside now that says, like, um, serving cold beer and killer women. <laughs> I know. Um, How many people are going to go watch the film Monster now after listening to this episode? It's on Amazon Prime. All right. At the time he of recording. Uh, yeah, watch this film, Monster. It's on Amazon Prime. For free. <laughs> the, the, the director's slipping you notes, isn't he? <laughs> she. She. Sorry, why did I go straight to a man? Because it's a man's world. It is. I apologise. Anyway, here's Mike. Uh, thick accent Mike. <laughs> I walked in the bar down there and uh, I saw her. She was shooting pool and I recognised her. And She had a bad scar on her forehead. Did my heart go to racing and beating? No. An uncover officer. Worst enemy head can be himself if he don't control his emotions. So I just ordered another beer and kept on working. But I knew I had her. And I knew I wasn't going to let it out of my sight. 
I must admit that, I mean, I didn't really, I wasn't listening to what he was saying because I was just in, in mesmerised by his by his, his accent, it's yeah. brilliant. You can tell that he's been an undercover officer for ages as well. Because when I watched the documentary and he saw th- and he was saying this, he his his face just did, did not move. move. There was a stone cold face. Oh man, he's like that stereotypical American you detective. Can, you can see why they brought him in, though. Yeah, he's great. He also, looks like he belongs in biker bars. I want to listen to Mike Joyner read me Harry Potter. Oh my god! Yeah, um, it would either arouse <laughs> me or send me to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure which, but I'm willing to find out. Mm. Um, Mike spent three days following Eileen around the biker bars in the area, playing pool and drinking beer, and making no secret that he had money to spend. So he even slept at her favourite bar, The Last Resort. That's the one from the film. And with the task force secretly stationed outside, on January 9th, 1991, Mike made his move. We were in the bar. We were dancing. And uh, I had a lot of money, and that's what she was interested in. And uh, she wanted to know if I wanted to go out one night and party. And I told her, I said, uh, yeah, I'd love to go out, but I said, you stink. You ain't had a bath. And I don't know when, and I said, I stink. And I said, I ain't doing that. I'll go, I'll go get a motel room and we'll clean up, but I ain't going out with no stinking ass woman. You stink. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love like, it. brazen mad. He's like, not only, he's about to arrest her and send yeah. her down, but he's like, you fucking stink. <laughs> <laughs> you stink. It's so clever, though. He's like, you stink. We're going to need to go wash. So Mike told Eileen to wait for him at the bar while he went to go and get his room key. But instead... He went to meet the task force outside. So he met with the outside people and told them they had to make a plan because they knew what she had in mind. And in Mike's words, he told him, piss on the fire and call in the dogs. This hunting's over with. Cool. So Mike... I wish I spoke like this. Like, I just love them, like, press on the dogs and do that. And he said, I'm not going off of her because I'm not going to be her next victim. Cool. Fucking Mike, man. Mike returned to the bar with Motel Key and showed it to Eileen, and he then waited for her to make the next move. Did I get worried about it? No, she wasn't going to kill me in the bar. I wasn't, you know, I really wasn't worried about it, not at that point. I just went and got another beer and said, just whenever you get ready, I'm ready to go, let's go. <laughs> I bet if she did try and shoot him, the bullets would just seep back out of him. Just, I'm not ready to die. They just bounce up. No, I, I don't think you want to do that. <laughs> I just fucking love him. He's so great. A little while later, Eileen and Mike start to leave the bar. The owner of the last resort, Al Bulling, was an eyewitness to what happened next. This is the guy who was in the film. Oh, okay. Um, and he is also a fun guy and he is also fun to understand. I feel like I'm immersed now in like a Western, just from, you know. My, it is a kind of like a modern Western. Yeah, so yeah. I'm, 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 I'm ready. What happens go. next? Oof, Al's going to tell you. They were just sitting at the bar drinking, you know. They didn't want to arrest her in the bar or anything because they didn't know what she had or didn't want nobody else 
getting hurt. So they waited for her to walk out the door. As soon as they hit the door, that's when they arrested her. Eileen was placed into a car and taken away. They'd finally got her. The next day, police managed to track down Eileen's girlfriend, Tyria, in Scranton, Pennsylvania. They offered her a plea deal. If she could get Eileen to confess on tape, she would get off scot-free. Because she knew what was happening. She knew what had been going on. And she was benefiting from it. Yeah. So incredibly, Tyria agreed to call Eileen and let the police record their conversations. Lee, they're, they're coming after me. I know they are. No, they're not. What? They're not going to let you go to jail or anything. Listen, if I have to confess, I will. Mm. Okay. Yes. Why the hell did you do this? Why did you do this? one thing there mm. i've told you i have mixed feelings about tyria mm-hmm. eileen said i love you a total of three times i think in mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. conversation mm-hmm. tyria didn't say it once she just said to get it over with the same month she was arrested eileen warnosk fully confessed to all seven murders whoa well i came here so she said that the reason I'm confessing is there is no other girl. I did it. There is no other girl. Yep. Which makes me a little mad because she never would have confessed if it wasn't for Tyria or her love, like her love and worry for Tyria, mm. she'd have kept that to herself. Like they've already got her. Yeah. But she wouldn't have confessed her otherwise. Um, is my opinion. But despite the severity of her crimes, Eileen refused an attorney saying that she knew she was getting the electric chair. So what's the point? Fair. She did have a defense though. Eileen claimed that in each case, the men had tried to rape her. It makes me slightly angry because it just it's a, it fuels that narrative that women lie about being sexually assaulted. I totally agree. And I do think perhaps in the first instance, maybe there is some truth to that. Yeah what she was saying perhaps even in the second one we don't know um and certainly it's no secret that in sex work sex workers do have to put up with a lot of lines being crossed lines being crossed and it is unfortunately a very common thing to happen in that line of work but yeah i think the evidence of just how some of these murders took place it's just obviously the frequency of it I'd hate to say, sorry, I don't want it to come across as that I'm saying like she's lying. And so... You can say that. Well, I don't, but, but I mean that, obviously we, we know she's lying because she 
a serial killer she killed lots of people but what i'm trying to say is like it's a it's a it's a tricky subject because self-defense over like sexual assault allegations is quite a big fucking thing isn't it yeah so like it's it's horrible to say it feels horrible to say that they're lying about it because because it did it generally speaking when you say that about it it, it's not a nice it's you should not a weapon you know yeah but like but we know that she is lying because she yeah yeah so it wasn't gonna fly anyway her trial for first degree murder started a year later on january 13th 1992 at the volusia county courthouse so only in america for this but uh, Eileen was only tried for her first murder, the murder of 51-year-old Richard Mallory. But Florida State Attorney John Tanner wasn't having it. Using what was called the Williams Rule, he was able to make Eileen pay for all seven murders. In Florida, if you have a series of crimes that are related in certain factors then you may be able to bring in evidence of those other crimes. And in this case, it was murder. Each of these killings looked almost identical, showing, I think, basically that this appeared to be the print of the same killer. And it certainly challenged the theory that she was simply defending herself against rape. When you're saying that everyone that picked me up tried to rape me, and credibility uh, becomes a real issue. Exactly. That's what I mean. Yeah. And I totally get everything that he's saying. It's so unfortunate that it also gets used against actual victims. I know. Yeah. That's why it's annoying. It's so annoying. When someone would lie and use it as a... Yeah. On January 27th, 1992, Eileen Warnos was found guilty of the murder of Richard Mallory and sentenced to death. She then elected to plead guilty for the five other counts of murder and accepted the death penalty without fighting it at trial. By November 1992... Eileen had been given a total of six death sentences. She was never charged with the murder of Peter Sims because his body was never found, which is really sad. Eileen Warnos was then executed by lethal injection on October 9th, 2002. Very close to the end of her life, she said, I have hate crawling through my system. I'm competent, sane, and trying to tell the truth. I'm one who seriously hates human life, and I would kill again. Her reactions were a typical Eileen. She was verbal. She was discussing something about uh, the motherships ready to blast off, uh, that she would be back again one day, and here we go. Some people believe that she was an abuse victim, that she was very childlike, vulnerable. Other people feel that she was a sadistic killer. She enjoyed ending men's lives. In reality, it was probably a bit of both, and that's why we continue to be fascinated by her. I agree with her. With Liz, I think it's a bit of both. It's complex, isn't it? Yeah, because she, from the get-go, had a really tough time with relationships with people, male role models, being abused and treated incredibly cruelly, didn't have an ounce of nurture, love, affection. Like, it couldn't be anything far from a healthy environment for a child to be brought up in. And then from age 11, selling herself and... I suppose almost you subconsciously would have 
a resentment towards people that were taking advantage of you as a child from from a child because you're kind of like well I'm having to do this to 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 survive I'm losing my dignity yeah or my innocence as a child you're just going to be that anger is just going to keep perpetuating she was sort of nurtured to hate men yeah to, yeah it's a uh, i think we're never truly going to know why she did those things in the way she did them and to, i think to some extent she doesn't she didn't truly know she felt she had to i don't know um but it's i think it's interesting to sort of um, you know, sort of what I was saying about at the start of her life, you can sort of feel sorry for her a bit, but then you sort of see this descent into her becoming a monster. Yeah, and it's it's sort of a bit mad, actually, how how far she goes. She had that point. And, I think that, like, yeah. when she got that inheritance money, she chose to go down that route. I think something bad, I do, I do think that that first one probably did come as a result of violence. Yeah, but we'll but, never know. And um, once again, it's it doesn't excuse the actions afterwards. It's no. very, it's interesting. It's 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 all. I think she's fascinating, super interesting. Uh, tell us what you think, everybody. That was the case of Eileen Warnos. Eileen, um, how badly all episode have you just wanted to say? Come on, Eileen. Yes, yeah, that's been running okay. through my head all the time. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I want to go and speak to Mike now. Yeah, let's, we're going to go move in with Mike. This is the end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you can watch our reality TV show yeah. on like TLC. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two girls and Mike. <laughs> Next time on Devils in the Dark with me, Helen Anderson. And me, Danny Howard. We're taking a look at the seriously gory and graphic crimes of Dennis Nilsson. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of Devils in the Dark. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please do check out the description for lots of helpful resources. And special thanks to Woodcut Media and our wonderful producers at Audio Boom Studios. <laughs>